We are in Acts, uh, actually next week we're going to be in Acts 28, which is the very end of the book of Acts. Uh, despite what you've heard about there being in Acts 29 lately, there is only in Acts 28. Uh, and then, uh, so we'll be done then, and then starting on July 3rd, we're going to uh, go back to what we did last summer, which is we called uh, Summer Psalms, and we'll work our way through the Psalms. We're getting a late start on it this summer since we wanted to finish this rather than coming back in the fall and doing a little more. And then in the fall, we'll start a new book, and we haven't quite decided what that is yet, and as soon as we know, we'll let you know. Uh, it's always nice if you can go read it ahead of time and kind of get your head around it a little bit. Um, but today, today we're in Acts 27, and your bulletin says we're going to do a little 28. We're going to stick to just 27 this week, so grab a Bible, open up there, uh, and we'll get started there in just a moment. But as a, a quick review, just the, you know, previously on this uh, show, uh, the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, uh, and then for unjust reasons, he ends up spending two years in jail there in, in Caesarea, and he was under the, the governor, Felix, at the time. And then last week, we saw that Felix left office, and a guy named Festus, yeah, similar names, uh, becomes the new governor, and, and Paul even has this opportunity to speak to King Agrippa during that time. And then afterwards, uh, at Paul's request, rather than being turned back over to the Jews in Jerusalem, he has to go stand before Caesar, the emperor, in, in Rome. And, and so here in chapter 27, that's uh, what we're going to see is this, um, this movement towards Rome, and it's going to be a boat ride. We're going to read the entire chapter. It sounds like a lot. It is a bit of a lot, but it's a narrative. It's a story, and so it's easy to follow along. Um, and, and just so you know, I think the best thing, way for you to do this, if you have the ESV Bible, then by all means, follow along if it helps you focus. Uh, if you don't, then uh, just listen right now and then come back when we get into a little more detail. That way you're not trying to match up words that aren't exactly the same. Um, so, if you got it, Acts 27, we're going to start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramitinium, uh, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off uh, Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmon. Coasting along, along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid no attention to the pilot, attention to, to the pilot and to the owner of the ship, and to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, uh, in, the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that it had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed, 
<clears throat> sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a <clears throat> tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, <clears throat> we gave way to it and, there, and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the, on the Syrtis, <clears throat> they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day. They began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on, lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and I, whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I, I have been told. But we must run aground on, on some island. When the fourteenth night had, had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty, twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and, and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldier cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. Food, It will give you strength, <clears throat> for not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when, you, when, when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the pre presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all, all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept some, some from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could sw swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And it was that all were brought safely to land. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Uh, God, we know that your word is worthy of our trust. We know that it is powerful for our minds and our hearts, and we need to hear from you. And so please make us to receive your word as your word. May we find encouragement in this passage today. May we learn to trust you and know that 
We have a God who has rescued us even when we don't feel rescued. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you notice right off the bat, uh, verse 1, that Luke writes, we. Uh, and that's because Luke is actually on this boat with Paul. Sometimes we picture him absolutely uh, all alone. But he's with, he's with Luke, and he's also with a guy named Aristarchus, uh, who is one of Paul's co-laborers. We saw him back in Thessalonica. In fact, uh, this is the guy that, because he was hanging out with Paul, ended up getting just uh, the snot beat out of him at one point. Uh, and now he's going to go through this shipwreck because he's hanging out with Paul. At some point, uh, this guy might second guess whether he should be hanging out with Paul. Uh, either way, though, they're, they're there. They're together. Uh, and the first ship they get on is what's called a coasting vessel. Uh, it's not built for the deeper ocean, and so it kind of just goes along the shore almost like a bus on a bus route, stopping city to city, picking people up, dropping people off. Um, and so then in verse 6, we see they are transferred uh, to a ship of Alexandria. Uh, this is an Egyptian ship that has gone its way to Rome. This is made for the deeper sea. It can travel a lot further. It's much larger. Uh, in fact, we learn there in the text, 276 people are on board this ship. Um, and so they arrive at this port called Fair Havens. How many of you heard that and heard the Grey Havens at first? Am I the only Tolkienite that sees that kind of stuff? Anyway, it's not the Grey Havens, it's the Fair Havens. Uh, and Paul's advice to them then is that let's, let's winter here, let's stay here. And, and when he makes reference to that fast, that is making a reference to uh, it's after the fast, meaning it's after this Jewish holy day called the Day of Atonement. And it just, it just marks a point in the calendar in a unique way, meaning um, the way we might say don't wear white after Labor Day, I think that's a saying, I've never paid any attention to it. Uh, and then you might say that instead of saying, you know, don't wear white after September 5th. Uh, so that's what's going on there. And uh, Paul seems absolutely sure that this is going to end in disaster, right? Um, <clears throat> that's the feeling he gets about it. That's his opinion on the situation. Uh, that's exactly how I feel every time I get on a plane. Uh, luckily, that's not been the case yet. Uh, but understand this, that what he is doing here, it's not divine prophecy. He, he's not been told by God that that's what's going to happen, um, and he's not going to be completely right on what's going to happen. Paul here is really just speaking from a place of general knowledge that he's gathered over a long life, um, much life that has been filled with a whole lot of sailing, and, and even been involved in previous shipwrecks. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, this here, but um, the general idea that Paul is giving them is, is if we sail right now, this time of year, with the weather, that would be unwise. And, and it would make things very dangerous. It's, it's not wisdom on, on the same level that we look at God's word. Uh, but there is much to learn, you know. But it is, it is wisdom. And there is much that we can learn about the world that God has created. That would save you and I a whole lot of trouble if we would listen to wise people who have more knowledge than, than us. Um, I can even remember when we first moved to Kansas, we, we lived in Olathe at first, and as we were looking at houses, someone advised us uh, when we were buying a house in Olathe that, that we should not have a house payment that was more than 25% of our take-home pay. And we didn't know anything about buying houses at this point. Uh, we did not take their advice. Uh, where ours was right at about 30%, and we thought that's only 5%, no big deal. Uh, and, and later we understood why they, why they had given us this advice, because it made our budget a whole lot tighter than it needed to be in every other aspect of life. It seemed like a little thing. It seemed like a quick thing to ignore, but, um, but that's the way it went. Now, I don't think we sinned in it. There was no sin, but, but it was unwise. And that's kind of what we're, we're seeing here. Uh, 
all of your life, there's a lot of areas like that where that kind of wisdom can be helpful. Uh, children, your parents may have wisdom on relationships. You don't know that yet, right? They may have wisdom on, on buying cars, on uh, what sort of job would be good for you to seek out, or, or what you would do well at. And, and you would do well if you were to listen to this. Uh, even as adults, you know, seeking wisdom from those who are older, those who are wiser than we are is a gift of God that um, can save us from a lot of unnecessary hardship if we'll hear it. Uh, in fact, that's why we as a church, we, we continue to pray for what we affectionately call gray heads. Uh, you know what I mean by that? Kids, you probably refer to them as old people. Um, and Travis is starting to get there. But uh, we're wanting to, because we want older people that come in with wisdom that can help in that regard. Uh, so then, in our story here, though, or as we're looking at the text, the owner of the ship and the captain, they desire to get to Rome because they want to get their shipment there. They want to finish what they've done, and, and that leads them to take this unwise risk of traveling in a season when they knew it would be dangerous. And in fact, they do encounter a storm, and they do not see the sun, they do not see the stars for many days, and that's the, like the map when you're on a, uh, on a ship, and that means they are literally lost at sea. They have no idea where they are. And then in verse 20, Luke writes that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Wow. Um, for Luke to say that, right? Uh, Paul in verse 21 then tells the, the leaders that they should have listened to him, right? Uh, should have listened to me and stayed in fair haven. Now, this is not a case of Paul saying uh, those incredibly cruel words that we should never say to anyone in a serious context, that I told you so. Rather, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, uh, you know what, you should have listened before, and it's a way of saying, I'm about to say something now, very important, and, and you should listen now. Uh, this time, though, instead of Paul just, just going off of general wisdom, general knowledge, He's coming with an actual divine word that he has received from an angel of the Lord. That's a messenger of the Lord. And, and Paul, Paul's word, the first thing he says is, take heart. Take heart. Uh, that's an idiom, right? It, it's defined as become encouraged. He's saying, take heart. I want you to become encouraged. And so Paul is saying, I, I know you feel hopeless. I know you feel hopeless, but, but let what I'm about to tell you give you courage for today and give you hope for tomorrow. Um, we learned something here. Uh, Paul sees this absolutely hopeless man, and, and he seeks to encourage him with a word from the Lord. Um, and, and Paul is able to, to speak this way because Paul himself has already been encouraged by the word of God that was delivered to him by this angel. And so in, in verse 24, then, we see that the, what the angel's first words are to him, right? These are often the first words of angels in scriptures. He says, do not be afraid. Because you, you better believe he, he was. I mean, he's seen angels at this point. He's probably not the angel that causes the fear. But imagine being on that ship that is rocking and shaking. The ground won't move. It's being tossed around. It would have felt like an unending storm. But the angel didn't just tell him not to be afraid. The angel actually reminds Paul, once again, of God's promises. Um, the promise of God to deliver Paul to Rome so that he can stand before Caesar. And I know this is repetitive, right? You've heard this already. We saw it last week. We saw it a little the week before uh, of God's promise, you know, that, that he's going to bring him there. And, and, and that's kind of the point, the repetitiveness of it, right? Because we need to be reminded of the promises of God often. 
Because we are so, so prone to forget. You ever seen that movie, Fifty First Dates? A uh, few of you, okay, a few head shaking. I, I never know, I rarely reference movies, I don't know who watches what. But um, in that movie, that Drew Barrymore's character in, in that movie, you know, if you've seen it, you remember, she, she woke up every day having no memory of the previous day. She has no idea what's happened. Uh, and, and Adam Sandler, this goofball, comes in and he comically pursues her, and eventually they, they fall in love and they wed. And then every day after that, the very first thing she does when she wakes up is, is he's left her instructions to watch this video. And on the video, he's showing her her life. He's showing her her kids. He's showing her kind of their story of how they come back together, just reminding her this is who you are. This is your life. This is what's true. Um, this is your, you know, to remind her of her identity and her life. That's the, the same reason that, that we hope to see you here each Sunday as we gather for worship. Uh, that's the same reason that we encourage you to read your Bibles during the week and why we, why we hope to see interaction and fellowship and friendship among us uh, outside of these walls so that we might be reminded often of the truth of God's love for us. See, our, our, our Christian walks aren't, aren't just on Sunday morning. It, it's every minute of, of every day, and staying in Scripture reminds us of our identity, you know. It's that waking up, and we forget who we are. It's the bigger picture of, of eternity. So then along with this reminder um, that Paul will survive comes, comes a second promise, right? He builds on that first promise. He says, um, states that all 276 on board will survive the storm. And so most of these people on this ship are, are not Christians. They're not even Jews. And yet uh, Paul tells them, you know, um, tells them that God, uh, the God who has promised their survival is the God that he belongs to and is the God that he worships. These are two identifiers. These are identities that we have as, as Christians. We belong to God, and we worship God. Now, in a, in a very real sense, everything and everyone does belong to God, right? That's why Psalm 24.1 can tell us, The earth is the Lord's, uh, and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell in thereof. Uh, see, your money is God's money. Your soul is God's soul. Your body is God's body. God created you, and you belong to him. And, and no matter what someone's opinions of, of, of this idea is, you can't really change the reality that that's true. However, what we're seeing here, the idea of belonging to God in the sense that Paul means it here, is a little bit different. It's more like we saw, in, or we can see in 1 Corinthians 6.20, which says, You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. In fact, uh, we often try to avoid any talk, uh, you know, thinking of that possession idea. We try to avoid any talk of, uh, of slavery often, because... Uh, it has a terrible place in our nation's history. However, the thing we can't escape from is that it's an actual biblical term that often refers to Christians and their relationship to God. For instance, Romans 1.1, Paul begins the letter by, uh, greeting, by a greeting that reads this. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, though. The word that we render there, servant, is from a Greek word, doulos. Doulos, doulos. Any of you heard that word before? Um, you'll see it around sometimes. It's actually one of the more common Greek words you hear. It means bondservant or slave. Um, and so in this greeting in Romans 1, 1, 1, Paul is making the point that he is a possession of Christ, that he belongs to Jesus, and he's saying it as a good thing. See, there's, a, a, there's another Greek term uh, that's not in Scripture, but was used by early Christians to refer to themselves. And, uh, and, and the word is this, is kiraki. 
Um, you'd spell it K-Y-R-I-A-K-I. And, and it means those who belong to the Lord. And in Scotland, in fact, they, they still often refer to the church as the kirk. Uh, and that word, the kirk, it, it comes from this, this word, this uh, kiraki. Uh, and, and that's who we are. That's our identity for us. We are the kiraki. We are those who belong to the Lord. Um, and so then belonging to the Lord makes us an object of God's love. Uh, this idea of, of Jesus possessing us uh, is seen in a lot of different ways. In, in John 10, 14 and 15, it's seen as, as him as the shepherd and our, us as the sheep. There Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. We belong to God. And we see these, these belonging to God images throughout Scripture. We just saw, you know, a sheep to a shepherd, but also a, a bride to a groom and a child to a parent. And, and to belong to God is a very, very precious thing. However, if, if you're like me, somewhere during the week, maybe even this afternoon, uh, we often forget that we belong to Christ. We forget that we have been loved by Jesus, that God himself has made a covenant with us, that is, uh, a promise to be our God, and we forget that, that not we, but, but God himself is the covenant keeper who will not go back on that promise. Church, you need to simply know that, that you belong to Jesus, that you are his possession if your faith is in him. That means he, he redeemed you, he sustained you, he cares for you. He provides for you. He loves you. You are his today and for all of eternity. And so then, even in the midst of the storm, you can rest on the fact that God really and intimately loves you. There's another, another beautiful thing here in verse 25. If you've got it, look at it. Uh, we see here that Paul believes God. Believes God. He says, I have faith in God. He's telling these people, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. There, there is this distinction between, between believing in God and believing God. See, many profess to believe in, in God today. Um, and many of those would, would also say that they believe in God in the way that he is revealed in Scripture, Right? However, a simple observation of the world makes it really clear that it's a rare thing not just to believe in God, but to believe God. And Paul tells the sailors, you will survive, because that is what God has said will happen. And Paul believes him. How uh, about us? Is it difficult to believe God? I mean, do you, do you believe God... Is still with you, even in the midst of suffering? Um, do you believe God when, when, when he says, or Jesus is speaking here in John 14, 1, uh, 1 and 2, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I, have, I go to prepare a place for you? I mean, do you really believe God when he says you have a dwelling in eternity with him? Uh, do you believe God when he says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability? See, what that means is, is that 
you actually can resist the sin that you keep giving into. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that God's ways are, are better than our ways? As we, we see in Isaiah 55, 8, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And he means my ways are better. Um, do you really believe Romans 8, 28? This is probably a familiar verse to you, but do you believe it? That for those who love God, all things work together for good. Can you imagine how difficult those words would be? To believe for Paul as the ship is breaking apart around him. That God will never leave him or forsake him. That all things work together for good. You see, Paul had faith that he would survive simply on the fact that God said he would survive. Um, we ought to wake up every single day and just bless the Lord for the fact that our souls are safe in his hands. Uh, I read... Uh, in Table Talk, it's a devotional kind of magazine thing, uh, recently the statement that I found to be quite encouraging towards this, a guy named Mez, M-E-Z, McConnell, wrote, Whatever else we lose in life, we cannot lose our salvation. It is cancer-proof. It is abuse-proof. It's even death-proof. These are the truths we run to when life kicks us in the teeth, when relationships are shattered, when the dreams of what we wanted to be in life have been eaten away and eroded by the sands of time. When our health fails, when we feel nobody cares anymore, when all seems lost, the Christian still has reason to hope, and we hang fast to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on him, because we have a wonderful Savior who will never leave us <clears throat> nor let us down. And so, along with all Paul's encouragement, um, he also lets them know that the road ahead is going to be be rough because the very next thing he tells them is this ship's going to crash. Uh, it's going to wreck. And, and so he takes this moment and he encourages them to eat as much as the grain as they can so that they'll have strength uh, and then to throw all the other wheat overboard. That's how desperate things are. They left early to make sure they could get this stuff delivered and now here they are throwing the very grain they've been paid to deliver overboard. Next thing we know the ship drops all four of its anchors and it charges towards a particular beach. And the ship runs aground, and some of the soldiers then plan, their plan is to kill Paul and the other prisoners. And there's good reason for this, um, because they're again kind of feeling hopeless, even in the midst of this. Uh, because Roman law meant that even though they would now survive the shipwreck, they would still be executed when it was dis discovered that they let the prisoners escape. Then, because God not only plans the end, but he plans the means, he puts this in the centurion's heart this desire to save Paul's life, and, he puts, and the centurion puts a stop to the plan of the prisoners. Um, and so I want to take a moment here to point out here that there is a, something unique here that happens. We, we've seen it all throughout Scripture. We usually just skip over it, though. Uh, we see this very kind action from a man who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. Um, this should be a, a reminder to us that because of God's general or, or common grace, as it's often called, there are, are men and women in the world who care nothing for Jesus and thus do not have saving faith, uh, and yet they are still very kind, still very compassionate, still very caring individuals. You interact with them all the time, probably. Um, and that's why, you know, we can even serve next to someone, sta you know, standing next to them who holds very different values from us as we serve someone who's in need, um, 
And, and we ought to thank God for that because that's the, the common grace in the world. And, and all the while, even as we pray that God might, span, might grant them special grace, uh, opening their eyes to have saving faith in Jesus, it is a wonderful thing that we can share uh, in those kind of moments. Um, and so finally, the captain orders everyone off the ship. If you can swim, swim. If you can't, grab onto something. Uh, what an absolutely terrifying moment. We read it and it seems no big deal, but if you can imagine you're on a ship, you don't know where you are real well, and it's all just falling apart, shattering. Um, and so you and I, we, we tend to see the end of things. I think uh, you, you read a text like this and you might wonder, listen, God has called Paul to Rome. You've said you're going to stand him before Caesar. Why not just get them, him there quickly? Why not just put him on the first ship? It goes straight there, nice and easy. He can stand before Caesar. And that seems confusing to us. Well, it's because God's more concerned with the process than you and I tend to be. He's much more interested in, in the struggles of, of life and how they grow our faith and challenge our faith and strengthen our character than he is just getting us to some destination. And so hear this. Really, really hear this. Being in, in the will of God does not mean smooth sailing. And I mean that literally in the case of Paul, and I mean that figuratively, figuratively in our lives. Uh, there will be storms of life that make your journey difficult. And, and through it all, God keeps his word just as he does here with Paul. God keeps Paul safe from the assassins in Jerusalem. He sustains him for two years while he's unjustly kept in prison. God protects Paul through the storm and the shipwreck. And God told Paul that all 276 of these people on board will be saved. And what does the last line of our entire passage say? And so it was that all were brought safely to land. God always keeps his promises. And we cannot underestimate the magnitude of that truth. You can't. Uh, we must learn to believe God so that we can honestly say, like Paul in verse 25, I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. Uh, also, let me just warn you, don't, don't fall into that foolish idea. You might even be thinking it now where you think, you know what, if God spoke to me through an angel, I would be listening too. That would make things easy. And that's a, uh, a foolish idea for the simple thing that, that God has spoken to you. He, he's given us uh, promises in his word. Promises like Hebrew 13.5 where, where we learn that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can you believe that? Uh, Romans 10.13 where God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can you believe that? See, there are promises of God to you, his children, all throughout Scripture. And like we saw earlier, we need to be reminded of the promises of God, and that's why we need to be in the Word of God. I've been a, I did the math yesterday. I've been a Christian now for 21 years. I've been through seminary, and I still constantly find when I take the time to get up and read my Bible, uh, there are moments often where I'm just like, wow, I had no idea. And that seems weird to me at the moment even. You know, I didn't know that. Uh, and the thing is, each stage of life, we find ourselves learning new things from God's Word. And that's beautiful. It's beautiful because God's Word never changes. It doesn't. But it changes me. It'll change you, and that's, that's why we need it often. We need to be reminded often of the wonderful promises of God for His children. That's the big thing here. God keeps His Word, 
And he's made wonderful promises to us. Let us seek to be reminded often of them. Let's pray. God, the world that we live in is a scary place. It just is. It seems to get scarier by the day. And so we thank you that our salvation is, is secure. And uh, we thank you uh, that we have reason to hope no matter what we may face in life, no matter what scary thing lies before us today or tomorrow or the next day, Lord, we have reason to hope because of Christ. And so, Lord, teach us uh, to look to you both in times of joy and times of sorrow, knowing that you have loved us the same in both instances. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.